It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm KSL's Debbie Worthen. Four years ago, my son Asher was diagnosed with autism. After getting our footing, we decided it was time to celebrate the news with all of you. And that's how Celebrating the Spectrum was born. Each week, we consult with the experts and others who are learning to navigate life with a loved one who has special needs. This is a place where we find hope, look for solutions, and connect with those working to create a better world of inclusion. We have a group joining us today for this episode of Celebrating the Spectrum. Researchers at Brigham Young University just released findings of a study showing children with autism benefit when parents are trained to provide at-home interventions. So today we are talking to Timothy B. Smith, a BYU counseling psychology professor, along with Tina M. Taylor, an associate dean in the McKay School of Education at BYU. Dr. Taylor's focus of teaching and research and service is to facilitate increased quality of life for individuals with disabilities and their families. She has worked with children and families for over 35 years. Dr. Smith is a professor in the BYU Department of Counseling Psychology and Special Education. His research evaluates services for people experiencing disability and mental illness. He also investigates how spirituality promotes well-being. Thank you so much, both of you, for being with us today. So happy to be with you. Thank you, Debbie. Yes. So, Dr. Smith, let's start with you. Tell us about the research that you're doing in your department regarding autism. Uh, Over the years, our department has done um, a lot of work and service and and, and support uh, for children with autism spectrum disorders, as well as parents and family. Uh, The research that we'll be talking about today is specific to families and how uh, parents and caregivers uh, can help their children. Um, In the past, we've looked, for example, at how positive parenting makes a difference in terms of the outcomes of uh, children with uh, developmental disabilities. Uh, But this particular study is more uh, deal with how to improve the parents' abilities uh, to work with their children. Right, right. As a parent of a child with autism, I can see just how valuable that would be. So, Dr. Taylor, you've been working with kids and families for 35 years, and I really want your answer to this. How has the perspective on autism and neurodiversity changed over the course of your career? Oh, my goodness. It's amazing to see how how it's changed from being so debilitating uh, to get that diagnosis of autism um, that parents didn't want that diagnosis. They would rather have back then in the olden days, um, a diagnosis of intellectual disabilities rather than to have the diagnosis of autism. Now it's more of a preferred, if you would, um, diagnosis because there is more hope. Um, Back in the eighties, 70s, 80s, really the diagnosis of autism meant you would have very little hope for ever being included in general education settings, um, not doing any extracurricular activities, not graduating from 
high school, maybe just completing with a, a certificate of completion, not going to college, not getting a job, not contributing to society in ways that many, if not most of our um, citizens with autism spectrum disorders have now. It's it, it's totally changed within the time that I've been working in this field. And, and that's so encouraging. I read a book recently. We had the author on a couple of weeks ago, and he had um, some research from years ago, and it probably was the 80s, where when a person, when a family got that diagnosis for their child, the doctor was just like, I am sorry, this is the worst possible news I could give you. You know, basically your life as you know it is over. It's going to be horrible. There's going to be no quality of life, which I just, I can't imagine living in that time frame. And I'm so thankful for the research from places like BYU that has been done to get us to where we are today, even though I believe we have a long ways to go. I feel like we're on the right track. I agree that we're on the right track. And and there is a lot of work still to be done, particularly with including students um, with autism in classrooms, Mm -hmm. with their non-disabled, with their typically developing peers, giving them as many opportunities as other kids have. Uh, to participate in all of their environments, whether they their school environments, community environments, church environments, and so forth. Right. Inclusion is my my mission. <laughs> and I know this is a marathon, not a sprint. And some of this may not even impact my son, Asher, but I'm hoping that, that future kids who are starting in elementary schools, at some point we do have true inclusion, whatever that looks like, because every autistic kid, as we know, is different. All right. So, Dr. Taylor, what were your thoughts as you started this project? I was excited um, to work with Dr. Smith in particular and Linda Chang, our, our PH. She was in her, her um, master's degree program at the time um, to work with them. Tim is a, a guru on meta-analyses, um, and he knows how to take lots of studies who have studied one topic mm-hmm. and find out kind of what is the answer today based upon all of these high-quality, randomized controlled trial studies Um to see what the answer is, because frankly, as a researcher, I could choose one study from Jones and Jones from 2021 and say, this is what the research says about parent implemented inf- interventions. However, if you've got 50, 51 studies, then you compile the information together and say, we can't just take Jones and Jones. We need to take all of these studies to see what the state of um, parent parental interventions are today. So this is what this study has done. So it's exciting to work with Dr. Smith and and others on our team um, doing this meta-analysis. No, that that seems like so much work taking all of those studies, which I mean, as a parent of a child with autism, I really appreciate that. Dr. Smith, so tell us about the study. How many kids and families did you look at and what factors played into the results? So as Dr. Taylor mentioned, we summarized the results of 50 other studies. And when they were all combined, that was almost 2,900 children. That's a lot. Uh, just remarkable. No individual study could ever uh, you know, have that large of a, a group. And so on average, they were about five and a half years old. And uh, they were predominantly uh, males. But mm-hmm. uh, we, we well, looked at Well, that's what we see with data. autism, too. Right. right, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It kind of matched what uh, the incidence is, how, how um, you know, it tends to occur uh, that way in the real world, and it showed up in the research as well. Um, but we recognize just that, you know, more research is needed specific to girls and young women with 
autism spectrum disorder. And so that is kind of a plug for the future. We need additional right. information on that. But in the meantime, we are just um, ecstatic that the results are now conclusive that parent uh, interventions absolutely make a difference in terms of child outcomes. Now, this is something that we would guess, but it's remarkable uh, the degree to which parents who receive training can improve uh, the abilities of their children. Yeah. What kind of improvements are you talking about? So specifically, uh, four areas, uh, communication and language. We, of, we often know that for young children in particular, you know, there's a developmental sequence where it's a little bit difficult to acquire verbalizations. And so helping children uh, to communicate in nonverbal ways and then trans, tra- transfer to uh, verbal and other uh, methods of uh, communicating, that is markedly improved when parents receive specific training about how to do that. Otherwise, each parent kind of develops their own system, you know, mm-hmm. about how their child, you know, communicates. They learn as an infant what their child's facial expressions are, things like that. And it's very, it's very uh, child specific, which is fine, but it doesn't allow for a broader scope of communication. And so the children feel frustrated and they're limited and they can't express themselves. And so a lot of the behavioral issues that we see in kids with uh, autism are because simply because there's a lack of communication. They right. have a need. They're trying to express the need. The parent doesn't understand it. And, and so by facilitating that communication, it turns out the behaviors actually uh, improve. And that's area two and three. Positive behaviors increase. And so pro-social behaviors, uh, social skills, all of those improve when parents receive specific training about how to do that. And then the undesirable behaviors, Mm -hmm. (laughs) those have a tendency uh, to decrease once parents know how best to manage those behaviors. And so the professional training augments the parents' abilities in those areas. And then the fourth area is adaptive behaviors or uh, life skills. So uh, toileting, uh, brushing their own teeth, uh, dressing themselves, Mm self-care in any way. So the interventions help all of those areas, particularly the first three. And uh, that is just awesome news for for parents and children. No, and I mean, no, it is. So you think about communication and language, starting with that. I mean, I think about, you know, like my neurotypical peers as adults. And a lot of times when you start to see conflict or or problems in a relationship, it, it stems back to the communication skills. So, you know, that's with neurotypical people. So with those Mm -hmm. on the spectrum, I know when our son was was very small, you know, he was all we just get ah ah ah, or, you know, uh, screaming. And it was the communication. It definitely was that. And those all seem to go hand in hand in hand. All right. Debbie, you are just making an awesome point. If I could just emphasize that really quick, which is sometimes we have a tendency to think as if our children with autism are different. But at the end of the day, the same principles that apply to all relationships apply to uh, our relationships with our children and their relationships with others. And it's just a matter of leveraging that You're right. uh, so that we can truly help them make a, a, a difference in their world. And they do and they will. You're right. No, that is that is amazing. Yes. Oh, thank you. Okay. So, Dr. Taylor, what what are the types of intervention that we're talking about in the study? So um, they're called parent implemented interventions. So it's any of those interventions that parents typically would be trained by an early intervention provider or 
a school district or a school or a community organization to help parents in those four areas um, teaching their children. So the interesting part to me is um, that we found it really didn't matter what the intervention was, the type of the intervention. So often we hear that, you know, this one type of intervention should be the one that all parents do. But uh, this research really indicated that, no, that doesn't really matter as much, and, and as well as, you know, how much time parents spend. It doesn't have to be 40 hours a week. We found positive effects with nearly all of the nearly all of the studies that we looked at so when you're talking exactly. about yeah when you're talking about the the parent interventions what what would that look like like practically speaking what would that look like in your home working with your child would that be like oh yeah I, just explain that to me sure so the uh, training involves multiple components. Uh, the parents come in, usually in a group setting. They receive group peer support, so they're talking to other parents so that they can understand that this is normal, natural, and you know, they get emotional uh, support and kind of increase optimism and, and hope mm-hmm. uh, through that process. In addition, the professionals provide them with concrete, specific skills. Here's how you, you train children in terms of uh, navigating going inside and outside. Here's how to maintain them safe uh, once they are outside. Uh, those are very you know specific instances. The professionals first model those behavior behaviors. They either show videos or actually enact that with the children. And then they coach the parents as they do it. And then later on, there are home observations, either via Zoom or in person, where they watch the parent and the child interact. And then they coach and and, uh, uh, mentor that whole process so that the parent and the child can interact more effectively. No, this this is just groundbreaking to me. We had a therapist a couple of years ago say, hey, your son needs floor therapy. And that was the first time I'd ever heard that term floor therapy, you know, because as I'm sure you both know, ABA is just like the therapy in Utah. You know, everyone's ABA, ABA, ABA. And so I started looking that up and he was he was really explaining it in very simple terms. Like as a parent, it's literally you get on the floor and play and you interact and, you know, you kind of navigate that that back and forth and that type of thing. So the training that you're talking about, where would parents get this? That was the thing. When I was reading this article, I'm all about finding out more resources and, and what I can be doing, because I do believe that the place you can make the biggest impact is in your home. You're with your child most of the time. They're not in therapy most of the time, ideally. <laughs> right. No, exactly. So what I would say is um, what I tell parents when I talk to them when they've got a newly diagnosed child is call the Utah Parent Center. Um, go to their website, utahparentcenter.org, because they have parent consultants for each region of uh, the state, and they can lead you to the right resources. Um we have federally funded early intervention providers. So Salt Lake area, um, DDI Vantage, I think Davis School District has their own early intervention. Provo School District has their own. Down here in Utah County, we've got kids on the move, kids who count. So we've got a lot of those zero to three providers when, you know, when we want to have the kids diagnosed mm-hmm. in those early years to make that difference over time. So that's where they would go. Um, if they're that age, if they're three and older, preschool, getting an integrated preschool um, 
environment for the child, if that's the most appropriate for them, which is, you know, federally funded again. Um, so we, we've got it. We've, we've got services basically cradle to grave. It's just go to the Utah Parent Center. They, they can tell parents the, where they should go. But, you know, I would love to tell you a quick story, if you don't mind, Please about do. you when you asked about what does what does this really look like in the home? I want to tell you a story about one of the success stories that I just love about parent implemented um, interventions. I'll call this kid Alan. He was about two years old and lived in a relatively rural area of the state. His mother called me and said, I've got this kiddo. He's just been diagnosed. I don't know what to do. I heard about ABA therapy, applied behavior analysis. I hear you do that. Can you come help me out? Can you have some of your students help me out? And so we did. They were getting, I think, some services from the early intervention provider. And we went in and I went in to help the mom and the therapist, the student therapist, set up a program for their child. I don't think he was talking at the time. Mm -hmm. He had a lot of repetitive behaviors, a lot of perseverations on things, um, you know, self-stimulation, uh, stimming, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the just classic characteristics of autism, which, you know, if it were in the 80s, you know, they would have kept him in special ed, right? you know, the rest of his life. But it wasn't the 80s. It was the 90s. And this mother really believed in her child and believed that the support they were giving to him at home, teaching him how to sit in his chair for more than five seconds, right. teaching him to focus on a task, learning his colors and his numbers, learning to speak, um, learning to, to use augmentative systems when the speech wasn't there, um, learning to decrease the, the, some of the challenging behaviors. They did several hours a week for a couple of years. This kid ended up being in the special classroom for a while, but then started integrating. And in high school, I think he didn't even need to have a, a shadow aide, like a paraeducator in his class. He became verbal, brilliant child, brilliant young man, went on to LDS mission, a regular mission, not a special calling type of a mission. Um, I went to his mission farewell. He was there playing a violin duet with his brother, had a series of friends just right there singing with them. And I thought if this mother had not taken the time to find out where the resources are mm -hmm. uh, and to, to get some of those parent implemented interventions in the home, this kid would not have been in regular classes. He would not have had 15 friends right. there with him for his mission farewell. He would not have gone on an LDS mission. He would not have gone to college. He graduated from college. Um, so, so the outcomes for this kid are what we could have for so many kids if they have that time with the parents who are trained to know how to interact positively with their child early on. Right. That's that bonus throughout the rest of the life, their life. No, that's so great. So, you know, our son went to Pingree autism center for several years 
And his therapist there, who I absolutely loved, she was like, we have to get him into a typical classroom. This could be the difference between him being the next Elon Musk or Anthony Hopkins or having a super awkward, isolated life. You know, as the parents, really hard to push out of the comfort zone. And and we've had some struggles, but we're getting there. I love that story. And kudos to that mom, especially in the 90s, because in the 90s, it was just kind of like, this is how it is, right? Absolutely. I actually worked at what the children's behavior therapy unit, which was the precursor to the Pingree school in the eighties. And our kids then were lower functioning, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were still struggling to speak, um, struggling to, um, use the toilet, self-help skills. Um, so it was a different population than what you see at the Pingree school now. Um, and the vision for what these can kids can do in the future, very, very different. So, kudos to that therapist to say, hey, this is, you know, this is the future for your kid. He can do great things in the world. And for the parent, that just gives you such hope. I mean, it really does because you, you know, you look at your child and your, your expectations have to pivot somewhat, but then you realize, okay, we're living in a different era where there are so many resource resources. And Dr. Taylor, you're quoted in the article saying children diag or, uh, Children diagnosed with ASD are higher fun- functioning today than even 20 years ago. And that is so encouraging. And I would like both of your takes on that. Starting with Dr. Taylor, what do you credit that to? Well, for, for me, it's three main things. I, I think it's the early diagnosis. So parents noticing. Um, and actually, I think the movie Rain Man with Dustin Hoffman did a great service yet a, a little bit of a disservice uh, to our field. You know, that's when I was just new as a teacher and I saw that show and I'm like, wow, my kids are not savant like, right. you know, Dustin Hoffman. So, so it was like, are all autistic kids like this? Mine aren't. But it, it made it so autism was a household word after 1986, 87, whenever that came out. Um, so having it a, a, a word that people would now speak about in their kitchens and learn that, hey, this kid doesn't just have intellectual disabilities. They may may have autism. Mm -hmm. So back in that 80s time, we were using the word more often. Therefore, we were getting more diagnoses earlier. We still would love to have them earlier than they are, particularly with our girls. Um, And then getting the early intervention, zero to three, getting them into um, early childhood special education, three to five. so those are two of the things, the early diagnosis, early intervention. And the third thing I see is the the wider spectrum. We're not looking at just the classical, you know, DSM-3R. Right, yeah. Or the DSM-4, you know, the old way of looking at autism as being just this one way. Um, now it's a wider spectrum, spectrum with a majority of the, the kiddos, the people with autism, do not fall within the intellectual disability category as it used to be. So we're, we're looking at the positivity of having autism and it's not a life sentence anymore. It's that big spectrum. So I see those three things, Tim, you might see some other things that you want to touch on. Uh, Sure. I I think it uh, really turned the corner uh, back when individuals of all types started to be seen as individuals. Hmm. And so this actually harkens back to the civil rights movement where uh, people were classified, um, not just based on race, but it turns out based on ability and gender and other categories. And so society back then was looking at people in terms of how do, how do we put people into boxes? 
And so a social transformation has occurred where we are looking at individuals and we are looking at individual abilities. Uh, literally, I think the biggest uh, move forward was the Americans with, the, with Disabilities Act, the, uh, the government funding, the government legislation that allowed uh, for services and for equal access. And, and ever since then, uh, educational service has been increasing, increasing, improving, improving uh, for children uh, with disabilities and their parents. That has been huge. It, we, we can't take that for granted. We're now in an age where that's kind of normal. Yeah, the, the government provides these uh, early intervention centers, as Tina just said. Well, they didn't used to. Right. <laughs> and so as much as we don't like paying taxes, it turns out that taxation benefits society when society wasn't addressing these things on their own. And, and so that government funding is the number one uh, thing that has made an absolute difference uh, for individuals with uh, disabilities. Nowadays, there's corporate funding and people are getting on you know, board mm-hmm. and, and everybody wants to help. And that's neat, you know, but we're, we're capitalizing on, on what has happened in the past. So parents are feeling less isolated, more supported. Uh, they're feeling more understood when they go out in public, less embarrassed. And uh, thank goodness, uh, because every parent deserves to be empowered and absolutely every child uh, deserves a loving, kind, beautiful future, uh, which Tina's story so uh, aptly indicated that right. that can happen uh, to the vast majority of children. And society is um, just now realizing the benefits. Right of having children with autism spectrum disorder integrated into all aspects yes. of our communities. No, I, no, I love that. Okay, we're talking with uh, Dr. Timothy B. Smith, Dr. Tina M. Taylor from BYU. We need to take a quick break. We will be right back. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Celebrating the Spectrum. We have a couple of BYU researchers who have just finished a big study on autism and the difference that um, training for parents can make in the child's life. So Linda Chang, uh, one of your PhD students who was also on this study, I want to quote her. She said, if we only stay with the traditional methods of treatments, we're missing an opportunity to help those in need. Now, I really love that because without thinking outside the box, we wouldn't have the progress that we've seen in autism studies over the last 50 years. So, Dr. Smith, we talked a little bit about that mindset, but kind of give me some more thoughts on that. You know, we go back to Asperger's and, and Asperger's syndrome. And and I mean, bless this lady's heart at church one day, got up and was like, this child had Asperger's disease. And I'm just like, oh, no. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know, I, I just kind of had to. I mean, one of my friends who also has a son with with Down syndrome, we just kind of looked at each other, glanced and smiled. But um, tell us about that mindset, because I think thinking out of the box has really 
made the biggest difference in the research and the accommodations and the supports that we're giving to our loved ones with special needs at autism. Absolutely. And the the shift is a community mindset. And so even that glance that you had with that other mother, right? You you both know, you're both supporting each other. We need each other in this community. (laughs) And it turns out we need everyone on board. And in the past, the unfortunate trend that Linda Cheng kind of was alluding to was that we used to rely on professionals Mm -hmm. and assume that they would provide all the answers and that parents needed to kind of obediently comply with whatever the professional said. Well, that's, you know, that's great. Please (laughs) seek out professional help. But at the end of the day, who knows the child best? Who spends the most time with the child? And, And so what Linda is saying is in the past, we really were doing society and our children a disservice by deferring to others when actually if we are a team if we're totally on board and acting in concert with the professionals as parents the outcomes of our children are going to be so much better than when we're just kind of passively saying okay i'm going to take my child to the the center or they're going to come over and they're going to provide some lessons to my child Uh uh-uh Get down on the floor and do the floor therapy. Right, right. <laughs> it's it's we're we're in this uh, absolutely together. Who is with the child more often? And a professional can come for a couple hours right. a week, maybe even you know twenty hours a week. But that's still not even close to the amount of time, interaction, uh, intensive uh, care that a parent can provide twenty four seven and does provide. 24-7, let's be honest. So we may as well increase uh, the abilities, the skills of the parents uh, to work effectively with their kids. Well, and I think that combination of that training with the unconditional love that you have as a parent for your child, I mean, that seems just like the magic token right there. Completely. Okay. Can I add to that? Yes. So, um, because parents do get burned out. And I know parents, <laughs> you know that, right? Which, yeah. From time to time. From time to time, and some some hours are more intense than other hours. It's not just some days, right? Some hours are a lot harder. Uh, and so we've got to realize that parents are not alone in providing interventions and providing the support to their children, nor are they expected to provide everything. Um, another quick story. Um, I became a foster mother of three children with some unique needs, some special needs. And, you know, I've been doing research on uh, respite care, families raising kids with autism and other disabilities for quite some time. But it wasn't until that year that I had those three kids, plus another one, plus my own, um, (laughs) that I felt Hmm. deep in my soul what these parents um, uh, struggle with and rejoice in while raising kids with special needs in your home. And there were times that I would just have to go to my closet and say, I can't hear my name called one more time. (laughs) (laughs) You hear it, mom, 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 mom. And I would hear Tina, 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 Mm -hmm. Tina, Tina, Tina. I'm like, oh, I've never heard my name so much in the last year as I had my whole life as I had in the previous year because of the desire for that connection, that need, that Mm -hmm. help, that support. And it, it it is very taxing on parents. Um, some of our research actually on respite care say that just one hour a week of respite care uh, changes marital 
um, satisfaction to be from dissatisfied to being satisfied. So parents don't have to do it all on their own. Mm -hmm. We need that. We need to collaborate and by getting some respite care, we can help improve family relationships, their cohesion, their, their, um, uh, the cohesion right. in their families, their uplifts, decrease their stressors, get re- getting respite care. All it's it's a huge package. It is of what parents and families need. And you talk about that that true empathy that you began to feel, like you were walking the walk, you were living, you were living the life. And I, I don't think all the research in the world could make up for that. So, you know, with that research and then knowing. This is actually day in and day out, every minute of every day, how it goes. I joke with my husband sometimes and I say, I'm changing my name because <laughs> I just hear mom like, <laughs> you know, like three, four hundred times a day. It's like, I beg you yeah. to stop. No, that that's incredible. So and it's not I'll just add it's not just while you're at home. It's it's when you're at work, too. So mm-hmm. I would be in meetings and I would like watch my phone. Like, is the principal going to call to say the kids threw rocks at kids again or used bad language to the other kids or threw a chair. Um, it, always looking at your phone. So when Tim says it's 24 seven, it is 24 seven. You don't really get that break at, at seven hours when the kids are at school. There you go. Look, you're looking at your phone. No, Debbie. no because is I want to read. About- I, no, I want to read this text that a girlfriend sent me this morning because she she has two sons that she adopted and they are both on the spectrum and one is is a little bit more extreme from the other and uh she's she just articulated exactly what you're saying this morning but she basically said you're always on pins and needles you send them to school you're on pins and needles like how is the day going to go fingers crossed we've had a good pep talk we had a morning prayer like asher you got this and then you know like how is the so you're right it's it's every minute of every day yeah, you articulated that, which feels validating because you guys are smart professionals. <laughs> okay. But, you know, and there's just all the immense joy and love and compassion and enrichment that you get as well. So, you know, it's just like both ends of this difficult and beautiful spectrum all packaged in one. Yes. That there's just nothing quite like it. Yeah, there's not. The highest of highs and some significant lows as well. And man, when my little boy like blows past a milestone that no other kid his age is doing, I just want to shout it from the rooftops. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. Dr. Smith, um, tell us, and then Dr. Taylor, I want to hear from both of you. Were there any parts of the study that came as a surprise to you where you thought maybe you would see different results or things that really stood out where you thought, okay, we need much more research on blank? That's a great question. So what surprised me mostly was what uh, Tina had alert, uh, alluded to earlier. Most of the interventions were equally effective. Hmm. And so it didn't matter if you had the early Denver, uh, the early start Denver model, or the uh, project impact, or uh, stepping stone triple P, any of those uh, were, were equally effective, which is terrific news. It so is. just go out and whatever's available, find it and, and use it. Um, there wasn't a difference between uh, whether services were provided by fathers or mothers, whether mm. the children were uh, male or female, the age of the child, uh, the child's initial abilities. It was equally effective. Wow. And so the answer is just do it. Just go get trained. <laughs> okay, Dr. Taylor, what about you? Were there parts that, that came as a surprise to you? 
Yeah, the ones we've talked about, I think, were most surprising to me. Um, but what what I was what I'm what worries me is we don't have a lot of participants who maybe come from minoritized cultures, races. Um, we don't have enough females that we're studying. You know, th- these mm-hmm. are understudied populations. So if you've got a family and they don't speak English and they live here in the United States or they're not documented, mm-hmm. they're afraid of, you know, stepping up and saying, I need services for my kid. They're not going to get what some of the more affluent, more knowledgeable, educated families might get in terms of services. So how do we really reach out to those groups so they can have equal access access to what others are getting. That That's what worries me. I, I want to see more studies um, that look at those populations and that they are being served. What do you think the solution is there? I think we need more people to um, get educated, come get degrees in school psychology, in counseling psychology, in special education, in early childhood special education, in psychology, um, we, we need to get our high schoolers into college, you know, from, from those fields, right. people with autism themselves, right. get them into our field so they can, from their experience, serve their, their people, their communities. Um, it, it, it's a long process and it's taken us a long time to get where we are. It's better than it has been, It is, but there's still so much work to do. Right. No, there is. And I can't remember which one of you were talking about this, but talking about the parent training. So, you know, we've had to just develop a really thick skin out in public, you know, when our son is just being crazy or, and not not bad, just crazy or doing stuff where with our neurotypical kids, we probably would say, like, you need to sit down. <laughs> but I, I don't want to do that because I want the exposure for people. So I've just had to like, okay, is he causing an actual problem? Is he stopping them from being able to enjoy the lacrosse game? If the answers are no to that, then kind of our gauge for my husband and myself has been let him continue because we need this needs to be part of the awareness and acceptance that this is this is neurodiversity at its finest. And with a world of inclusion that we all want, then this is this is part of that. Okay, so. Um, what what do you both see the future becoming for those individuals with autism and what should the public know? This is my, always my you, favorite think, question on the podcast, by the way. I think your family is doing it, right, based <laughs> on what you just said. Uh, inclusion starts with our experiences. And so more and more people are experiencing contact and uh, benefits uh, you know, of interacting with families, with uh, children with uh, autism spectrum disorder. It, I am thrilled, you know, that 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 is becoming um, a community focus. And so, what I see is increased interaction, awareness, acceptance, and a little bit less uh, kind of rigidity mm-hmm. when it comes to our fellow human beings. Uh, for goodness' sakes, there is abundant um, love, potential blessings that uh, are just awaiting society. Right. Yes. Thank you. I love that. And Dr. Taylor, what about you? Oh, the same, but I've got a story to reiterate. Oh, good. Quick story. Because we love stories. We really do. Um, so this past Sunday, I'm a member of the LDS church and I'm sitting in my ward, my congregation, and I'm, it's a mission farewell. 
And so there are a lot of people there that don't typically come to our ward. And there's some young adults sitting right in front of me. And there's a gal in our, our ward and she's got, you know, disabilities and is nonverbal, but she makes happy sounds throughout the meeting. And she was making these sounds and pretty loud. The kids in front of me, I, I hear one of them talk to his, his buddy. And he said, what was that? He said, oh, she's just, you know, a member of our ward. And that's how she talks. Mm-hmm. And that was it. It was like, oh, my gosh, that was beautiful. It, it, he didn't say, oh, she's disabled. She's whatever. Right. But she's just a member of us. And that's who she is. And if, if we can help our youngsters when, you know, they're three, four years old and they hear someone who speaks differently or doesn't speak at all. You say, you know, that's just one of, she's just one of us. Right. She's and just one of us. Just one of us. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't that what we all want? Really? All of us have these same goals. We want connection. We want to feel loved. We want to feel safe. It's no different. Right. Oh, any last thoughts? Anything else you guys would like to add? Anything the public should know? The fact that uh, your listeners have hung with us throughout this podcast needs to be praised. Uh, parents, family members, uh, individuals uh, who love and care uh, for those among us who are differently abled, bless you. We we are a team. We're all united. Um, you sharing this information with others uh, who need it is going to help them. Um, we're just all interconnected. Uh, we actually need each other. Our society teaches us otherwise, but we need our children. Right, right. With all of their issues. <laughs> right. And uh, it, we're, we're just all one family uh, moving forward. So uh, just a huge note of appreciation mm, to thank your listeners. You. Thank you. Yes, thank you to our listeners for sure. Dr. Taylor. I would just say just to... Not be fearful. Not be fearful of asking for help if you're a family Mm -hmm. and you need support. Um, Not being fearful if you are not a family member, but you see someone in the grocery store really struggling because they want that toy or they want that thing at the very end of the counter. Um, Saying, "Can I? Can I help you? Can I? uh, You know, help you with your groceries. Right. Help you get through through this because I see you're struggling with your child. Um, So." Reduce the fear, um, be there with a heart to help and to support and to love. Yeah. Less judgment, more compassion. Right. Right. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. And Celebrating the Spectrum is a KSL podcast. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. 
yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.